Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. And I thank you for joining me for the Loving Liberty broadcast or podcast, depending on when you're catching this. Oh, there is so much to talk about today. And I want to start with something that seems to be really dominating, uh, not just the headlines, but the Twitter sphere. Oh, my goodness. I've never seen so much hand wringing and and angst about what Donald Trump has done to the Kurds. And I'm not going to I'm not trying to make light of the conflict that's happening right now in Syria. And it sounds like last check, uh, Turkey had launched an offensive against a Kurdish-held area. And uh, this is where American troops had been pulled out. And I'm, it's, it's so curious to see on both sides of the political aisle, there's a lot of anger about this. How dare the president pull our troops out when the Kurds have been our friends and they've helped us fight ISIS and, and so on and so on. Um, it's, it's like... Uh, it's like they're reciting the prayer of the interventionist, you know, may God have mercy on us for what we have done to the Kurds. And I just have to stop and wonder when I hear stuff like this, how many people are thinking about the circumstances or for that matter, the, the thinking that led to the situation that is unfolding right now in northern Syria or with long the Syrian border with Turkey. And part of what I'm getting at here is, well, first of all, when did this become? something that was a vital pressing interest of the American government. And along the the course of the program today, we're going to have a little bit of a civics lesson and, and, and remind ourselves, why does our government exist in the first place? And I know there are a lot of different interpretations of, well, you know, there are certain things it has to do, but we'll go back to original sources. And this much I can promise you in none of the original sources from the Declaration of Independence to the Constitution Will you find anything about becoming the world's policeman? In fact, the more that American government or leaders within the American government has acted as the world policeman, the less stable the world has become, the less free we've become here at home. Now, if that sounds like wild eyed, crazy conspiracy theory, I can understand. But I also understand a lot of people don't really try to connect the dots They're repeating sound bites or they're repeating whatever bumper sticker slogans their favorite talking heads have been saying. And and it's, you know, Meghan McCain. What was the the, the tweet I'm referring to? The the uh, interventionist's prayer. That's pretty much where she was coming from. Oh, I can't believe this. This is a stain on our national integrity and our national character. What? Not to intervene in someone else's tribal dispute, which is really what it comes down to. So I'm going to start out by sharing with you uh, a marvelous essay from Barry Brownstein. This was actually published back in 2016, but he describes the dynamic that's at work in this conflict between the Kurds and the Turks. And you'll see this at play in a lot of other areas, too. But it all comes back to tribalism, which is why the essay is called Is Tribalism the Worst Idea in History? He shared this on Facebook earlier today and, and started with this introduction about the Kurds. He says, regardless of how you feel about the American military intervention, the suffering of the Kurds is and has been immense. And for those who don't know, the Kurds are a large ethnic minority in Turkey. He says both Kurds and Turks 
share a disease called tribalism, a destructive mindset that increasingly numbers of Americans, both on the left and the right, are embracing. And if American tribalists are successful, the result will be the end of the destruction of America, rather, as we know it. And he starts with a story. This is the part that just really pulled me in. He says, my student, the color drained from his face, explained that a blood feud had just begun that would continue for generations. He'd been teaching an MBA class when this student, who was a Kurd from Turkey, received an emergency phone call from home. In his village, police had responded to one neighbor's complaint that the chickens of another neighbor were running loose in the street. The patriarch of the family whose chickens were loose was incensed when he came home to learn that the honor of his family had been insulted by the police visit. In rage, he shot to death the members of the family that had called the police. And here Barry Brownstein points out, I'd been lecturing about the rule of law. Now, about the same time that the chicken feud began, Chinese journalist Zhao Qing was exposing Chinese food scandals. Clenbuterol is a pig feed additive that makes pork redder and meatier. Because it's poisonous to humans, though, it's been banned. And Newsweek related the story, reported by Zhu. Zhu hears from a food safety official about a provincial political leader told by a farmer that his pigs will still get the banned chemical because it makes their meat a hot seller in urban areas. Don't you know that it harms people, asks the official. Yes, replies the farmer, but city people have free medical care, so it's no problem. And here, Barry Brownstein diagnoses the root cause. It's tribalism in both events. He says tribalism is the belief in the supremacy of one's group identity over the rights of individual human beings. Tribal identity fosters negative feelings, even hatred toward those outside the tribe. Prejudices are reinforced, while commerce and contact with those outside of the tribe are minimized. Tribal societies tend to be closed societies. And he says tribalism is a failed system that has brought poverty, misery, and destruction to the world. Political scientist R.J. Rummel, in his book, Death by Government, documents over 133 million murders of civilians by governments in the 20th century. Many of those murders were groups of people, Armenians, Bangladeshis, Bosnians, Chinese, Jews, Poles, Rwandans, Ukrainians. Murders driven by ethnic tribal hatred. As journalist Matt Ridley explains in his book, The Origins of Virtue, the tendencies, the tendency of human societies to fragment into competing groups has left us with minds all too ready to adopt the prejudices and pursue genocidal feuds. Next, Barry Brownstein refers to the Vienna-born philosopher Martin Buber. I'm probably saying his name right. Buber? Anyway, my apologies. Fled to Jerusalem after Hitler came to power. In his best-known work, I and Thou, Buber observed two fundamental ways of seeing the world. I, Thou, or I, It. That makes sense? Through the I, It lens, others are seen as less than us, either as objects who help us or obstacles that get in our way. Tribalism at its core looks at the world through I, it, eyes. Now, just as a quick aside here, if you've ever, if you've ever taken, you know, a psychology class in college, and if you've ever heard some of the, uh, the different characteristics that distinguish a sociopath from normal 
or is can I say normal anymore? I don't even know. Maybe that's forbidden. But a person who's not a sociopath, the sociopath looks at people as objects and determines how they interact with people based on is this person helping me or are they just an obstacle in my way? Isn't that interesting? Tribalism sees the world the same way. Now, in contrast, Brownstein points out through the eyes of or through the lens of I thou, we see others as individuals, as people as important as we are. And I love it. He quotes James Farrell of the Arbinger Institute, a peacemaking organization in his essay, Resolving the Heart of Conflict. Farrell writes of Buber's work and observes a consequence of the I-it beliefs. Quote, when we choose to see others as objects and fail to see that they count as we ourselves do, we create within ourselves a new need. We create the need to be justified for our objectification of others. End quote. Now let's apply this to the two stories he shared earlier. The Chinese farmer justifies poisoning city dwellers. And the Kurdish patriarch justifies his murderous rage. Tribalism suppresses humanity's capacity for empathic connections by justifying the belief that others outside one's own tribe are enemies. And Barry Brownstein asks, can we even imagine an America where each ethnic group and each religious group distrusts any other group and eschews contact with outsiders? Ridley asks us to consider which human institutions generate trust and which ones dissipate it. Harvard social psychologist Gordon Allport, back in the 1940s, developed his famous contact hypothesis. Increasing exposure to out-group members will improve attitudes toward that group and decrease prejudice and stereotyping, end quote. So the market process under the rule of law does just that. Capitalism rewards those who have empathy for others. Those who better understand how to fulfill the needs of others are more successful in a society where the rule of law is supreme. Now, I have to pause here because we're coming up on the break. How can this not ring true? I mean, I, I'm trying to imagine how someone could close their mind to this. Well, but but there, there are people out there that hate us. Yes, it is true. In the course of your lifetime, you are going to encounter people who do not love you or who may hate you. It doesn't mean that you have to descend to that level to live your life. There's a lot more happiness outside of tribalism. We'll come back to this essay right after these messages. Hey, once again, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm sharing with you an essay from Barry Brownstein. I would strongly recommend, if you haven't read his essays, I was looking for the, the correct website, and, and the fastest link I found was go to intellectualtakeout.org, um, click on any of his essays, and you'll find that in his bio, there's a nice link to Mindset Shifts, where you can actually subscribe and, and get his essays in your email. It's a tiny investment of time, but uh, I'm, I'm recommending him as, as someone who has, I think, a very principled and informed and, and inspiring point of view. I never feel like I'm being hammered into submission when I read Barry Brownstein's essays. I always feel like he's got a he has just a slightly different slant. 
And I love people who can show me the world through different eyes. Because there's a lot of uh, there are a lot of sycophants out there who, you know, basically are parrots all saying the same thing. It's kind of a tribal thing, which brings us full circle back to the topic at hand. Tribalism. Is it the worst idea in history? This is the essay that I'm sharing with you. When we went to the break, we were talking about how the market process under the rule of law helps to decrease our prejudices and decrease our tendency to stereotype one another. So in a nutshell, capitalism promotes trust. Now, Barry Brownstein says, to be sure, Americans, too, slip into the I-it mode, but capitalism has a tendency to extinguish that hateful behavior. Journalist James Surowiecki, in his Forbes essay, A Virtuous Cycle, helps us to understand why. Using examples from history, he shows how it came to be that under capitalism, buying and selling were no longer about a personal connection. It now became about it was now about the virtue of mutual exchange. Surowiecki continues, quote, in place of relationships founded on blood or affection, capitalism creates relationships founded solely on what Marx called the money nexus. But from a certain angle, this impersonality should instead be seen as a virtue because it advocates the fair treatment of people, not on the basis of consanguinity or proximity, but just because they're, well, people. Capitalism ultimately widens horizons because it makes the idea of trusting only people within your particular ethnic or geographic group seem outmoded. At its core, the system is cosmopolitan, since you should be willing to trade with anyone who can offer a good deal. End quote. The Chinese pig farmer who poisons city dwellers is able to sleep at night because there is no social norm of trust that has been established by commerce in a free market. In his eyes, city dwellers are less worthy than rural dwellers. And Brownstein points out former Attorney General Michael Mukasey has said that America is the only nation in the world to define itself not by blood or land, but by a law, the Constitution. The rule of law, with its guarantee of equal rights for all, allows commercial transactions to bring people together from different countries in a market process. Ancient superstitions and prejudices dissolve in that process. And he says countries that have allegiance to the rule of law are open societies. Immigrants are free to maintain cultural and religious differences as long as all people are united in the melting pot by their belief in the principles of liberty and the rule of law. He says, we share a common humanity, but that doesn't mean that one idea is just as good as another. Some ideas lead to generations of blood feud. Others justify the poisoning of distant strangers. A very different idea advocates the fair treatment of people, not on the basis of consanguinity or having common blood with them or proximity, but just because they're, well, people, as Sir Awiki puts it. The market process paired with the rule of law, facilitates empathy and respect for others and a peaceful and prosperous society. Those who still live in tribal societies want the same things that we do, happy and prosperous lives for themselves and their children, but they don't yet understand that in an expanding marketplace, their goals are compatible with, even best achieved by, promoting the well-being of all those strangers outside the tribe. With freer access to the growing network of commercial exchange, however, he says that understanding is inevitable. 
Boy, this hits all the right nerves for me. Again, this is from Barry Brownstein, Professor Emeritus of Economics and Leadership at University of Baltimore. Um, I strongly recommend. You can find his essays on fee.org. You can find them on intellectualtakeout.org. There are many other places he's written, but he's got a pretty clear view of what's going on here. And I think it's an especially timely message. I mean, we look around the world. Oh, yes, yes. The Kurds and the Turks. Oh, those tribalist peoples. Why? It must be awful. You know, we don't see it in our own in our own um, lives or in our own culture. So I would direct your attention. Look to Washington, D.C. You want to see what tribalism looks like? More often than not, it's kind of a partisan affair. How many people do you know who just absolutely despise individuals who don't fit within their group identity. I know conservatives who look at liberal, they call them libtards. How's that for a a nice, uh, inclusive and understanding way of looking at others? He's a libtard, you know, I mean, that's a pretty harsh epithet. And there are liberals who do the same thing for conservatives. The part I don't understand is how people can spend so much time, effort and energy actively hating on people that largely they've never met or interacted with or ever talked to. This is one of the big tests that unfortunately a lot of people fail. And and look, in the interest of full disclosure, I have to confess there was a time when I was very tribalist in my thinking. I love to hurl around the, the clever labels. Ha ha! ha they're not Muslims, they're Muslims. You know, I... I I threw red meat with the best of them. And I don't know what uh, I don't know exactly what it was that uh, that eventually tipped the scales to where I realized, you know what? I'm doing a really good job of making people angry or getting them fired up. And and to be fair, without uh, sounding like I'm bragging here, people loved me for it. I built a very large, loyal talk radio audience by throwing red meat. People, the more demons I gave them to wrestle with, the more they seemed to love what I was doing. But my conscience spoke up at some point and I had to ask the question, what am I really accomplishing here? Yeah, I'm getting everybody hot and bothered. You know, I'm, I'm my my progressive uh, listeners are, are fuming and calling in to argue with me. My conservative listeners are cheering me. But what am I really accomplishing? I'm keeping the divide wide open, if not deepening it. Where am I adding value to anybody's life? And I don't remember precisely where it happened, but I do remember there came a point where I I had to make a choice. Do I want to do things a little bit differently? And so that's that's why I find myself in a probably the most apolitical position I've ever been in in my life. I'll participate in politics to the extent that I believe I can use whatever influence I have wisely. And that's usually just to try to keep government within its proper role and to make sure that the rights and the liberties of all are being observed, which usually is undertaken by keeping government limited, keeping it out of as many areas of our lives as possible. And I don't come to you on this program as an oracle. Expecting you to hang on every word and believe that everything I say must be written in stone. I'm not that smart. But I do believe there's a better way. My heart tells me that I am 
going a more positive direction than I was when I was mired in tribalism. I find myself more willing to meet with people, consider their points of view, learn what I can from them. Even if we don't agree on a lot of things, I still can always learn from them. But most importantly, I don't tend to lose sight of the fact that they are people, first and foremost. And I can love them, and I can respect them, even if I don't agree with them. I'm not going to pretend that it's easy all the time, because it's not. But I would say that it's worth it. And I'd encourage you, give it some thought. Credible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. Again, 801-331-8113 if you would like to join the conversation. You may want to join the conversation after you hear what I'm going to share with you next. I was joking around with Eric Peters from Eric Peters Autos earlier this week about, uh, you know, the, the gas pumps with the little video message on them. I don't know if this irritates you like it does me. I just I just want to gas up my car and suddenly, hey, look, there's a there's a message blaring here. And maybe it's a little newscast or a commercial, most often a commercial. But there are so many screens in my life. I'm just uh, really. But I had to laugh because the Babylon Bee in its uh, in in fine form as usual had a headline about how uh, gas purchasers will now have to listen to a lecture by Greta Thunberg before purchasing gasoline and i thought that's probably not far off uh, the environmentalists are are again a lot of things everything that i'm for they're again I love to cook on my barbecue, and apparently the fact that I eat red meat and I love to barbecue means that I am complicit in the destruction of the world. I'll admit, that troubles me a little bit. But then I eat to take away the the pain and to lessen the stress. I don't know. It's a vicious cycle. But I never thought that they would go this far. This is the headline from CBS News. Environmentalists have a new target. Charmin toilet paper. Oh, boy. Here we go. It says consumer goods giant Procter & Gamble faces pressure from environmentalists to clean up its act. More than 150 groups are pushing the maker of Charmin toilet paper and bounty paper towels to start using recycled materials in its products. Now, currently, neither of those products uses recycled paper, and about one third of it is sourced from Canada's Boreal Forest, a large swath of virgin forest that rings the Arctic Circle and acts as a critical check on climate change. Shelley Vineyard, Boreal Corporate Campaign Manager for the Natural Resources Defense Council, says it's just unacceptable that a company like Procter & Gamble, P&G for short, is making toilet paper, a product that is used for seconds and flushed from virgin pulp. Apparently, she's one of several dozen protesters at PG, P&G's annual shareholder meeting in Cincinnati, Ohio, earlier this week. Now, the NRDC likens Canada's vast forests to the Amazon of the North. Replacing just half of P&G's virgin pulp usage with recycled content would dwarf the company's current climate commitments. The NRDC said in a letter to the company co-signed by 150 other activist groups. 
Now, it's been about three years since I had the opportunity to drive across a, a small portion of Canada from British Columbia and across Alberta to come back home from Alaska. It was magnificent. And, and I, I have to confess, the scale of the forests up there, we weren't, this was nowhere near the Boreal Forest, but the scale of the forests up there was, was almost incomprehensible. I am talking trees so thick, it was almost like looking at a lawn, blades of grass on a lawn. That's how thick it was traveling through some of those areas. Just beautiful. And somehow I don't believe Procter & Gamble is, you know, looking to clear cut it all. But they have a pretty solid reason for not using recycled wood pulp to make toilet paper. It doesn't make good toilet paper. In fact, a P&G spokeswoman asked CBS Money Watch, have you tried recycled toilet paper yourself? I mean, maybe it's not all made the same, but there are some that would uh, compete favorably with 80 grit sandpaper. And the P&G spokeswoman said uh, she pointed to Charmin as a superior product, saying, I promise you'll enjoy it much more. Now, remember, Procter & Gamble is one of the world's largest consumer products companies. Their annual revenue is around $67 billion. They have a stock market value of $305 billion. Along with Charmin and Bounty, their brands include Crest Toothpaste or Gillette Razors, Head & Shoulder Shampoo, Pampers, Diapers, and Tide Laundry Detergent. So they got some pretty big stakes here. But the bottom line is toilet paper made from recycled fibers doesn't have the same qualities, which means people will end up using more tissue made directly from trees. That spokeswoman also noted that Procter & Gamble's experience making recycled tissue products shows that a significant amount of recycled fibers end up as solid waste sludge going to a landfill. So instead, Procter & Gamble promises to source its paper from forests that are well-managed, which in the company's view is a more responsible course of action than just using recycled products. About 40% of its product line today comes from forests certified by the Forest Stewardship Council. That's a nonprofit conservation group, according to the company and FSC. So let's put this into perspective. How many toilet paper rolls do you suppose are used every year? The number I see here is 36 billion toilet paper rolls per year. And Andrew Musgrave, director of Catholic Social Action at the Archdiocese of Cincinnati and one of the 150 signatories to the letter sent to Procter & Gamble, said, Personally, I buy recycled toilet paper because we can, and it's good for the earth. Now, Musgrave said he learned about the issue of deforestation for toilet paper relatively recently through a member of the congregation, and that it was a natural fit with church teachings on preserving the environment. We believe in the dignity of life, and part of that is having a place to live. He added that Cincinnati-based Procter & Gamble had a history of supporting work and social justice in the community. Uh-oh. Sorry. Those are kind of buzzwords. And he believed it was possible to shift to a recycled paper product without reducing quality. Do tell. Do you do that simply by demanding it, or... Is there, there's some science involved here. Musgrave said, frankly, there are a lot of different companies that have moved in the direction of using recycled paper. And I have a hard time imagining that they would have done it if it were not economically sustainable. OK, but one of the questions that comes to mind for me, but is their product in any way comparable with something like Charmin? 
And by the way, I apologize if this if this is making anyone uncomfortable. I mean, I'm I'm trying to keep this as as tactful as possible, but um <clears throat> to my thinking, Charmin is pretty much the Cadillac of bathroom tissue. That's the good stuff. That's the top shelf stuff. That's what we put out for company, so to speak. Now, making paper sustainably doesn't necessarily mean using 100% recycled content. That's according to Stephen D'Onofrio, uh, the director of the Ecosystem Marketplace Initiative at the nonprofit Forest Trends. He says it could potentially be a mix. It could be single source certified and recycled. Wood has a heavy presence in most U.S. bathrooms. Americans use more tissue paper than any other nation except China, which has more than four times its population. So that comes out to about 36 billion rolls per year, according to an analysis in Scientific American. And the top three companies in what's called the tissue industry, P&G, Kimberly-Clark, and Georgia-Pacific, rely almost exclusively on virgin pulp for their products. Now, again, just a quick aside here. Do you suppose they're doing that because they have this uh, antipathy toward the environment or they, uh, they're just trying to, to go scorched earth? I don't think it is. I think it's because it creates a superior product. Now, follow with me on this. Would it not make sense for them to source that virgin pulp in such a way that they're not in danger of running out? I would think that would be the way to go. But, you know, that's that's just me thinking aloud. I would think they'd want to stay in business. They wouldn't let's cut down every tree until we're finally out of business. No. And, and, of course, it is a renewable resource. Let's not forget. Last week, Procter & Gamble promised to increase the portion of FSC certified fiber in its products to 75% from the current 40% within six years and to better protect caribou habitat in the Canadian forest where it gets much of its pulp. FSC certification limits forest clear-cutting and ensures trees are replanted at the same rate that they're harvested. See, I'm not seeing the problem here. However, the article says... Even harvesting from sustainably managed forest has an environmental cost when compared with leaving trees uncut in the first place. D'Onofrio says the question we should be asking is whether or not those products are from virgin primary forests, which are rich with biodiversity, food systems, and other ecosystems. He says it's that natural infrastructure that we're trying to avoid being lost. When companies make these pledges to be sustainably sourced or use recycled content, that's the problem they're solving. I don't know, but it sure sounds like it'd make for a heck of a debate, don't you think? Wouldn't you rather see, for instance, in the presidential debates, uh, you know, them talking about things like this? By the way, I don't want to sound like a hippie or anything, but uh, what little bit I know about hemp makes me wonder why someone hasn't tried to... Uh, I don't know, create a hemp-based toilet tissue. It's a pretty useful thing. Maybe it's something we'll get into another. Actually, what I'll need to do is find someone who can speak on it with, with kind of a, an expert point of view. Happen to know such a, such a number of individuals, I'll have to see if I can persuade somebody to come on the show and talk about it. Stay with me. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be back right after these messages.
Hey, thanks for listening to the Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde program. Just to clear up any confusion, I'm Brian Hyde. Glad you could join me. 801-331-8113. I really love my new uh, iPhone X. I've had it now for, I don't know, I've had it for a couple of months. And, and I really like it. I hope this doesn't sound like I'm bragging about it. It's the greatest thing in the world. It's, it's, it's really not. But one thing that I do find a little bit disturbing is it tracks my screen time faithfully. And at first, when I started noticing this, it would send me a report every Sunday morning. Actually, it was strangely enough, as I was sitting in church, I'd get a little buzz and what the heck is this and see what my notification was. Here's your screen time average for this last week. And it would tell me you averaged an hour and 50 minutes a day. And it would tell me that's above or below your normal usage. Well, now I get to up to the minute reports. I can check at any time. Anytime I swipe for my notification screen, whoa, there it is. Here's how much time you've been spending online. And you know what? It's a lot. I mean, a lot. And on the one hand, I guess I could I could justify it by saying, well, look how connected I feel with the world. And isn't it great? Why, well, I could tweet about that if I wanted to. But it kind of depresses me because I am spending I'm spending close to three hours a day on that screen. I know it's like, well, get help, dude. <laughs> Go find somebody who can can talk you off the cliff. I don't know if I need talked off the cliff, but it but it clearly points out this is a much bigger part of my life than I anticipated that it would be. And I don't know if you feel the same way, but uh, it makes me wonder how healthy could this be? Well, I saw a very fascinating article on LouRockwell.com today. I thought I would share this with you. The title is Step Away from Your Cell Phone for at least the next few minutes. Now, I would encourage you to take that advice unless, of course, you are listening to the Loving Liberty Radio Network on your cell phone. I mean, come on, for crying out loud, we're set up to make it as convenient as we can. It's an app that you can download to your cell phone and listen to us anytime, anywhere. You can catch the podcast anytime, anywhere. Maybe just set it out of view and just listen to... The soothing sound of my voice, and I'll, I'll try to walk you through this. But this is what Devin and Andre has to say. He says, please, for my sake and yours, focus on nothing but the words on this screen for the next few minutes. Any distraction may lead to hazy memory and an altered perception of reality. Better yet, he says, he says put your smartphone on do not disturb, or better yet, get it out of sight. He says, distractions are always going to be part of life, but in this day in this day and age, modern technology has made them almost constant. One study found that cell phones distract people 80 times per day. But this broken focus is more than just an inconvenience. It can also lead to memory trouble and an inaccurate perception of reality. So apparently there's a new study out by researchers at Ohio State University that found that distraction may cause a person to believe a different reality than they experienced. This in turn can lead to false or inaccurate memories. Remember the good old days when you used to have to get drunk to experience that? <laughs> eh, me neither. The results of the study were published in the Journal of Experimental Psychology, Human Perception and Performance. Researchers asked participants to focus on a four-colored square on a screen. Sometimes a brightly colored square would light up another square to serve as a distraction. 
Next, the participants were asked to identify the color they were staring at on a color wheel. If they chose a slim range, it signaled confidence in the selection. A wider range indicated doubt. Now, the results showed that most people confidently picked the color of the distraction light or overcompensated by picking the farthest color from the distraction light. In any event, the focus altered their perception of reality and memory. So here's here's the takeaway. If you want to improve your chance to form good memories and experience reality as it's happening. As well as retain information, then limiting distraction may be central to your efforts. And then the article offers some really interesting ways to improve focus and encourage more accurate memories. Number one, limit cell phone use. Only use it when needed and come up with set times to check text messages or email. Number two, exercise in the morning. Number three, be present with the tasks you're performing. Number four, eat healthy fats each day. I can check that one off here. Okay. Number five, say what you just learned or experienced out loud or write it down. And number six, don't answer questions, the phone, or anything else that pulls you away. If someone asks you something while you're working, tell them you'll respond when when you're finished. Double back a moment to make sure you regain your train of thought. I don't know why that struck such a nerve with me, but it does, and it rings absolutely true. Especially the part about don't get distracted. Now, there's, there's even a component of manners that comes into play here. And I have to admit, I've been kind of cavalier about this, and I, and I feel bad. I'm trying to make amends in, in how I approach this. When I am conversing with another person, once in a while, as we start the conversation, I will put my cell phone on silent. Now, sometimes that's a distraction to pull out my cell phone and put it on silent, but I have to do it. I have to remind myself, put it on silent here for a minute. And I'll feel, you know, a text message arrive or I'll feel somebody calling because the phone's buzzing in my pocket. I resist the urge to check. Now, obviously, there might be some exceptions to this. If my wife was going into labor or something like that, of course, I'd probably sneak a peek at the screen. Oh, my water just broke. Not the kind of thing I'd want to ignore. Yeah, I'll get back to her whenever. When I'm out dining with someone and I've got my cell phone, I try to put it out of sight, or if not out of sight, face down on the table. And I'm privileged to know some people who are busy, productive, hardworking folks who have lots of irons in the fire and they're constantly involved in good projects. Which means they always have a lot of people seeking them out. They're always they're in demand. But they seem to do a wonderful job of balancing that need to be accessible with being present in whatever task they're performing or whatever conversation they're having with another person. I had an absolutely fascinating conversation with an old cowboy here about a year and a half ago uh, while attending a, a wonderful seminar in Modesto, California, the Three R's Symposium. And he talked to me about, I wish I could remember the official name for it, because it, it was a very interesting and somewhat disturbing technique of distraction, how to break another person's distraction. So let's just say for the instant, for the sake of, of uh, argument, you've got a salesman sitting in front of you trying to pitch something to you. 
and they've got their pitch going. Maybe they're very smooth. They're very well rehearsed. Something as simple as uh, you're, you're holding a pen in your hand. You drop the pen on the floor and lean over to pick it up. You've just broken their, their momentum and their, tra- their train of thought. And if you get a couple of people in the room who know what they're doing, you can take a speaker who is absolutely in command of their subject and fluster them. Now, I know it sounds like, well, this can only be used for evil purposes. And I I don't think necessarily that's the case, although certainly some people could do it like that. It was just fascinating to me that uh, someone had figured this out, that there are little distraction techniques or little things you can do that shift a person's impact or deflect a person's impact without it being obvious. I mean, you know, there's always the I stand up and I turn my back to you with my arms folded, protecting my personal space. Okay, that's one way to do it. But it could be something much more subtle. And what I'm submitting here is the idea that, you know what? I think the cell phone or acknowledging a message or a text on your cell phone, hang on, I got to take this call, can have the same effect. It's hard to remember a time when we could run around without cell phones, without being immediately accessible. I mean, maybe some of you remember these dark ages. Do you recall? If you wanted privacy on a phone call, you better hope that mom and dad had a nice, long, stretchy cord on that phone and you could wrap it around the corner and walk around the hall. Or thankfully, there was a laundry room that was fairly close to our downstairs phone. So if I really needed privacy, I could just, you know, string it around the corner of the hallway and into the laundry room, close the door and have a very private conversation. If you called somebody and they didn't immediately answer, guess what? Tough luck. You try it again later. Most people didn't even have an answering machine. That was that was fancy pants stuff. Nowadays, I swear, if, if somebody doesn't immediately respond when you reach out to them, you know, people start getting indignant. Hey, I texted you three times already. Yeah, in the last two minutes. Let's be patient. I don't want to sound like I'm complaining, but I, I do wonder sometimes if all the uh, connectivity isn't acting more like a leash of sorts. Something to ponder. Stick around. Hour two of Loving Liberty coming up after these messages. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 